This morning is the fifth Sunday of the month, which happens a few times a year. And whenever that happens in the calendar, I uh, take a break from whatever series we're going through. At this moment, happens to be 1 Corinthians, which we have been studying through verse by verse for a uh, couple years now. And I do a Q&A. And so you have submitted some questions in advance. And I'm just going to take uh, this time to answer those questions, some of those questions rather. Couldn't fit all of them this morning. And then next Sunday, we will uh, resume back in our study of 1 Corinthians. Again, this is our fifth Sunday Q&A. If you haven't joined us for this before, whenever there's five Sundays in a calendar month, I take time to answer your questions. Well, let's jump right in. The first question is, what does 2 Corinthians 6.14 mean? Does it apply to relationships in general? In other words, friendships, business partnerships, being part of a non-Christian organization, etc. Well, while we turn there and look at 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 14 and 15. If you're not familiar with the reference, as soon as we read it, it'll probably sound familiar to you. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 14 is what he asked about, but I'm going to read 15 as well. Paul writes, Do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Or what harmony has Christ with Belial, which is just the name he uses for Satan? Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? What we have there is this phrase, bound together. Do not be bound together. And if you've ever heard the phrase, unequally yoked, it is from this verse. Because in the Greek, in which this verse was originally written, the phrase bound together is literally unequally yoked. That's what the Greek says. And that phrase or that idea of being unequally yoked comes from the Old Testament law, specifically Deuteronomy 22.10. And it says, and, and this is used figuratively here in the New Testament, literally in the Old Testament, the Israelites, the ancient Israelites, were forbidden to yoke together two different types of animals for the sake of farming. So let me uh, explain that a little bit. Obviously, back then, they did not have modern machinery, and so they had plows, for example, that were too large to be pushed by human, and so they would connect an animal, two animals, actually, to the plow, and then the animal would pull it. Now, the yoke, as some of you may know, would be a large piece of farming equipment, a piece of wood that would... Uh, connect or harness two animals together, and then ropes would be thrown back to the plow or whatever the farming equipment was. And so very commonly, you would have, and even today, uh, in some countries, you would see two oxen that would be connected to a plow, and they would pull the plow. Now, obviously, the plow would go fairly straight. There would be some control used by the farmer, but it would go straight because you had two animals that were the same kind. If you were, however, to hook up on that same yoke an oxen and a larger uh, but longer-legged horse or a smaller donkey, 
then the lines would not be straight. In fact, you would eventually just be going in circles. So it's ineffective. And so that's the idea, figuratively, of unequally yoked. Don't be bound together or yoked together with something that's going to cause you to not be effective as you would with two of the same kind. Now, you've probably heard this passage and that phrase, unequally yoked, applied to a marriage between a Christian and a non-Christian, a believer and an unbeliever, right? We often say, well, don't, you know, if someone is dating and they're interested, they're a Christian and they're interested in a non-Christian, we say, well, you don't want to be unequally yoked. In other words, you don't want to be bound in marriage to an unbeliever. And that would be an accurate usage of this verse, don't marry an unbeliever. The question that's being posed by this individual is, does it go beyond just marriage? Because it doesn't specifically say marriage here. It talks about not being bound together with unbelievers. It talks about partnership. And the, the, the descriptions here are pretty clear, right? Righteousness with lawlessness, light and darkness, Christ and Satan. And this would refer then, you could apply this verse to any relationship in which an unbeliever has a controlling, and that's very important, controlling influence on the believer. Not in practical things such as my boss is an unbeliever and he controls the fact that I have to fill out these forms and work till 5.30. That's not what we're talking about. What we're talking about is a controlling influence on the person's spirituality, on the person's biblical understanding and practice of the Bible. So basically, how you live your life as a Christian. Okay? Um, So again, working late hours, that's fine. If your boss makes you and you comply in lying to the government to preserve the company's bottom line or whatever it is, then that's what this verse is talking about. Your spirituality, your faith, your commitment to Christ is being affected by an unbeliever. And so there's not a hard and fast rule like this relationship, that relationship, um, but basically that principle uh, is the unbeliever if you enter this relationship controlling your spiritual walk. Now, obviously, there are times where it just may be you just have a great fear of man that you need to repent of, things like that. Uh, and that would apply here, but it's specifically talking about a situation where there really is no other choice for that relationship to continue unless they affect you negatively spiritually. And so uh, a, a big one that's uh, commonly mentioned in this verse is business partnerships. Again, not clients, uh, not people you have a contract with, but if you as a believer start a business with an unbeliever, okay? And so your existence, not your existence, your, your sustenance relies on that business thriving, and you are equal partners, and your equal partner is saying, no, the government will never know. I know why I keep going to taxes, but no, the government will never know. We don't need to tell them. This client paid us in cash. We don't have to pay the taxes on that. Then there's a problem. And you see how, uh, you know, unlike just a client where you could say, well, I'm just 
don't want to serve you, right? We have the right to refuse service. We have a situation where you're stuck, right? Because now if you say no, then he says, well, I'm pulling out, and now you're bankrupt or whatever it is. So that kind of gives you the idea of what types of relationships uh, this would mean. So I do need to add, this does not negate the Great Commission. This is in no way saying have no relationship with unbelievers, right? This is not a call to abandon any and all relationships with non-Christians. In fact, the Scriptures are very clear. The opposite is true. Um, And so... This is a call to abandon any relationship with an unbeliever that demands you compromise your beliefs for the relationship to continue. Okay? Number two. Question about the Legacy Standard Bible. Please tell us about this new translation. What do you like or dislike about this translation? So the Legacy Standard Bible is probably the newest translation into English of the Bible. And when we say translation, you understand that the Bible was originally written in Hebrew, Greek, and a little bit of Aramaic. And so for us to understand it, uh, there's many translations. In fact, even in this church, there are many different English translations uh, that are represented. Most common are the, the, new Ameri- the New International Version, NIV, the New American Standard, the NAS, which is what I preach from, Uh, and probably the ESV, the English Standard Version, which would be the second newest version that's come out, or at least popular. And uh, undoubtedly, there are some even non-English versions represented in this church, uh, as you have a version that's translated into your first language. The Legacy Standard Bible is taking uh, what is considered the, one of the, if not the, most literal and accurate English translations, the NAS, the New American Standard, and basically fixing some things that are not consistent. And that's not me just saying that. They set out and said, we are going to take the NAS, but go back to the Greek and Hebrew and kind of fix some things that we haven't liked about the NAS. Okay? In fact, the people who translated and then published the, uh, the Legacy Standard Bible uh, did this in conjunction with the Lockman Foundation, which has the sole rights uh, over the New American Standard Version. Okay? And so, just as a side note, if you ever notice, like let's say there's a pastor you know uh, who really always preaches out of the NAS and they write a book and they use the New King James or the ESV as the Bible in their book, it is because the Lockman Foundation is very strict with who gets the rights to the NAS. So they probably didn't get it, okay? And that's why that happens. That's pretty rare. You don't have uh, many other major English versions in where one organization controls the rights and is very careful about how you, it uses it. For those of you uh, who are... Uh, appreciate John MacArthur. That's why when he first did the study Bible, it came out in the New King James, even though he's always used the NAS because they could not yet get the rights to the NAS. Okay? Back to the Legacy Standard Bible. I'm going to read a paragraph straight from its website that describes what it is. The Legacy Standard Bible, or LSB, is a translation that at its core seeks to be a window into the original Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek by translating individual words as consistently as possible within their various nuances 
It allows the reader to discern what God originally wrote and know the author's intent. In this way, I'm still reading, the LSB seeks to be an improvement upon the NASB while simultaneously preserving its, the NAS, faithful legacy. Um, so this, the LSB, was translated by a group of men from the Master's Seminary and the Master's University, again, a joint venture with the Lockman Foundation, which owns the rights to the NAS. Essentially, it is the NAS with some small changes that make the LSB more consistent and accurate to the Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic. Now, the NAS is already very accurate. So even in interviews with the translation uh, group that I've watched, they even admitted that most people probably won't notice, if they're used to the NAS, they won't notice some of the changes. In fact, most of you use the NAS, and you probably didn't notice that three weeks ago our guest speaker used the LSB because I believe the verses he used, there were actually no changes. In fact, I wouldn't have even known he was using the LSB if it weren't for the fact that I saw him carrying it up to the pulpit. Okay? Um, so, here are some changes. In the Old Testament, often the word LORD is in all caps. When the word LORD or the name title LORD is in all caps, it is actually the Hebrew word Yahweh. It is not a word. It is actually the name God gave himself. It is the name he used to introduce himself to Moses in the burning bush. The reason we don't have Yahweh in most of our English translations is from a Jewish tradition because in Hebrew, in ancient Hebrew, there are no vowels. Okay? They speak with vowels, but when they write it down, they only write the consonants. So, there were four Hebrew letters, yod He vau He, Yahweh, but we don't have the vowels, so we don't know how the name of the Lord is actually pronounced. Moses did, because God told him, and then Moses told other people, but since then, it hasn't been passed down, so we don't even know if Yahweh is filling in the correct vowels. Now, you remember the Jews took very seriously not taking the Lord's name in vain. And so for them, that included mispronouncing the name of God. Okay? So they just said, let's just change it to Lord, or you're familiar with Jehovah, which is taking a Hebrew word for God and adding uh, the different vowels. Okay? So they were playing it safe. Uh, and you get it, right? If someone... It's hard to make an English comparison because if I just told you my name is RGR, you'd guess what it is because you're familiar with it. But if it's a bunch of vowels and you're like, I cannot figure out what this guy's name is, you wouldn't hazard a guess and butcher his name. So it's the same idea, but more so for the Jews because they would, would have considered, uh, right or wrong, that this was taking the Lord's name in vain. And so they just replaced Yahweh, the actual name of the Lord, with Lord, okay? And so what the LSB is doing is they're putting back Yahweh where the Hebrew says Yahweh. There are many times where the word Lord is used in the Old Testament, but when it's Yahweh, they say Yahweh. 
Okay? And by the way, the burning bush, when Moses says, who should I tell the Israelites sent me? And he says, tell them I am sent you. That's his name. That's the word Yahweh. I am. Um, another change in the LSB, and you can see why for social PC reasons this was changed, uh, but many times when the word bondservant is used in the New Testament, uh, for example, when James introduced himself in James 1.1 or Paul in many of his epistles, it's actually the word slave. And for obvious reasons, especially in America, that word became taboo, but it's the word slave. And there were slaves before American slavery, okay? There were slaves in the Roman Empire, things like that. And so um, they're bringing back that word, and instead of bondservant, you'll see the word slave, which is more accurate. Um, One other change, and there's a few other minor ones, um, is that you know how sometimes when I'm preaching and I'll say, okay, this word, right, I'll I'll tell you an English word, and I'll say, Paul used this same word uh, in 1 Timothy. And then I'll have you turn to 1 Timothy, and the English word is actually different. And then I tell you, but it's the same Greek word as the word we're looking at in 1 Corinthians. And basically what the LSB is, it's going to be more consistent. So it's going to be the same English word every time that Greek word is used, okay? So they studied, they chose one translation of that Greek word, and then they're going to use it consistently every time it's used instead of having that confusing scenario that I just gave you, okay? Um, And the reason that happens is probably more understandable to those of you who speak a foreign language, right? Your child hears that a word in the foreign language that they know you speak fluently, and they say, Mommy, Daddy, what does this mean? And you're like, well... It kind of means this, but not really this, this. There's no real direct English translation. And that's true whenever you translate from one language to any other language. And obviously in ancient Greek and Hebrew, that's the same. And so that's why even in sermons, I'll say this word means this, 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 and this. Okay? Because it can mean all of those in English. And so they're choosing one and being consistent. Okay? Um, What do I like or not like about it? Um, I like all of those things. Uh, What I don't like about it is not about the Bible itself. It's just simply it's a newer version. And so uh, a lot of times it takes time to adopt. Um, The ESV spread very quickly. Um, I would imagine, and this is not a knock on it, I would imagine the LSB would uh, take on a lot slower and stall at some point simply because it is directly connected to, frankly, an individual, John MacArthur, and the people who follow him, right? He's not a cult leader. It's just he's not as broadly known as the people who were involved in the ESV and promoted it, like Wayne Grudem and John Piper and people like that, okay? And so I just don't like it because I don't want to switch in my preaching and then people are lost and the chances of you going out and buying a new Bible after you've already, you know, used the same Bible for years and all your memory verses are from a certain version. Um, So that's the only thing, but that's a practical issue, okay? And so that being said, obviously things can change. Uh, It's pretty safe to say that I will never preach from the LSB. I will always continue preaching from the the NAS because it will 
uh, probably just remain a, a quite a small uh, audience. Okay. Number three, um, the Bible tells us not to lie. I've always understood lying to be deceitful speech intended to deceive the hearer. Some people find it easy to qualify this definition by introducing the motives of the speaker. For example, a, quote, white lie, or believing it's okay, for example, to lie in order to get someone to a surprise party. Uh, I've long been wondering about the practice of making deceitful statements as a form of humor, uh, such as, oh, I'm going to tell your wife about that, but you're joking, things like that. Most people, including Christians, do not consider this lying. I wonder if the Lord is offended by this practice. Should a Christian avoid using deceit to be humorous as well as a white lie, uh, as well as white lie situations and, quote, harmless pranks? I want to go back and start with the Ten Commandments um, because the Ten Commandments, although they don't directly apply to us today, uh, nine out of ten are repeated in the New Testament, so in that sense they do, but the Ten Commandments are the foundation of the revelation of God, of His desire for mankind, and thus a revelation of His character. And so you know that one of the Ten Commandments says you shall not lie. No, it doesn't. It says you shall not bear false witness, which is a type of lying, but the Ten Commandments do not uh, explicitly forbid all lying. False witness indicates some sort of legal court-type situation where you are testifying deceitfully against another person. That really has no bearing on answering this question. I just wanted you to know this, to be thorough, okay? Uh, What does apply to us today are Old Testament biblical principles as well as New Testament commands. What do I mean Old Testament principles? Proverbs 12, 22. Lying lips are an abomination to the Lord, but those who deal faithfully are His delight. Psalm 101, 7. He who practices deceit shall not dwell within my house. This is God speaking. He who speaks falsehood shall not maintain his position before me. Now, what we see from those principles, and we're getting more to the point here, is there are contrasts to lying, right? So he clearly outlines in Scripture the opposite of lying. Dealing faithfully is the opposite of deceit. Dwelling in the house of God, that's a big one, is the opposite of a liar, okay? These are not any things that a true believer can cancel out with one lie or even multiple lies. You can't lose your salvation, right? He's clearly talking about a character, a character trait that contrasts with godliness and Christianity. The first question then, is the kind of lying you are doing in big picture in line with the characteristics of unbelief and wickedness. Now, clearly, malicious deceit is that. Lying for the sake of greed is that. Lying for the sake of actually hurting someone or getting them hurt is clearly that. That's not grace and goodness and Christ-likeness. Now, let's be more specific. Turn to Colossians chapter 3, verses 9 and 10. Colossians 3, 9 and 10 
speaking to believers in an explicit command. Says, in verses 9 and 10 in Colossians 3, do not lie to one another. There it is. Straightforward. Since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices, again, there's that principle. Don't lie to each other since you laid aside that old self of depravity. Verse 10, and have put on the new self who is being renewed into a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. Again, there it is. Lying is characteristic of the old self, the unbeliever. Not lying is characteristic of one who's being is in Christ and being conformed to the image of the one who created him. So this passage in broader context is talking about putting off the old self, as you could probably gather. So talking about regeneration, it's talking about renewal, uh, what is emblematic of depravity versus what is emblematic of the new self. Don't turn there, but then you have in Ephesians 4.25, laying aside falsehood, Speak truth, each one of you, with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. That's the passage where it gives various examples of complete 180-degree repentance. So it says, stop speaking falsehood. That's not enough just to keep quiet and just speak pleasantries for the rest of your life. Start speaking truth. Okay? So what do we know thus far? Habitual lying such that it characterizes you? Bad. Wicked forms of deceptions, bad. Now let's talk specifically about white lies, uh, lying to get someone to a surprise party. You guys understand that, right? Or even an engagement, that's probably a more common one, and joking. Bottom line, a lie is a lie. Okay? I'm going to read for you a dictionary definition which would apply to the Scriptures as well. A lie is a false statement made with deliberate intent to deceive or an intentional untruth. So both just uh, lexically, is that the word? Lexicographically, in the definition, (laughs) intent is important. In Scripture, intent is important because God looks at your heart. What I mean is this, saying something, is, saying something that is not true is not always a lie. For example, sharing a fact, but you're actually incorrect in that fact, that's not a lie. You're just wrong, okay? These are obvious, but I'm trying to get the idea out. Changing your mind. Yeah, let's go to Chili's for dinner. Uh, you know, I decided uh, to go to TGI Fridays. Doesn't mean you lied before. You changed your mind, okay? Um, saying you'll be there at 7, you show up at 7.30 because of traffic, doesn't mean you lied. Okay, so saying something that's not true or turns out to be untrue is not always a lie. So intentionality is important. Is your intent to deceive? If it is, it is a sinful lie. Thus, a white lie is a sinful lie. So when I talk about intent, okay, I don't mean, oh, my intent was to not discourage them, and so I, said, I told a white lie. 
that you can't replace one seemingly good desire and that outweighs a sin. Okay? So a white lie uh, is a sinful lie. Deceit for a surprise party is a sinful lie. You are intending to deceive even if your motives are good, right? To make the party thrower happy, to make the birthday boy happy, right? It's still a lie. And if you take this further down the line, right, what is that phrase? When we practice, first practice to deceive, what a tangled web we weave. I'm butchering that, I know. But you look down and then let's say the white lie is with your spouse. Is that what you want to create? A marriage built on just don't want to make her sad and then, you know, she's going out with lipstick on her cheek or whatever it is, right? Um, So we need to be careful because it has other implications, which I'll talk about in a minute. So intent is important. The second important issue is context. And this is where the third category that was asking the question comes in, joking. If the situation clearly indicates that you are joking, for example, an extreme obvious case would be everyone's joking, right? Like, oh yeah, well I made 100 points or whatever it is, then it's not deception because everyone's in on the joke, Context is very important. Let me give you some more examples to help you understand this. When Roger Moore, the actor, says on screen, my name is Bond, James Bond, is he lying? No, because you understand that is an actor playing a part. Am I lying when I lay down on my children's floor at night and say, once upon a time there was a forest filled with glowing three-eyed squirrels. No, I'm telling a story. Nor are people lying any time they write fiction. You understand the context is fiction. More to the point, was Jesus lying when He told the disciples there was a rich man who... No. Because clearly, right after, they would say, Lord, Lord, explain this parable, this story, this fictional analogy to us. Context is very important. Okay? On a side note, big picture, those two principles, intentionality and context, are really going to help you in every area of the Christian life to understand and avoid legalism. Very important. Let's get practical about lying. You can get someone to a place such as a surprise party or surprise engagement without lying. You can do that. You can tell them the truth without giving away the surprise. Right? Yeah, we're having dinner. Okay? It may just take a little more effort, all right? Um, On the flip side, and I know this is a little bit of stretch, but this is kind of shepherding for our local church. Let's be the type of people who respect others to the degree that we don't press for the sake of personal curiosity and create a culture where it's just normal to keep pushing people. I'm not saying it's your fault that people tell lies in situations like that. But we need to have, I mean, it's kind of one of those things where 
yeah, these sins build upon each other because in the church there's not this culture of grace and mercy and respect. On the other side, let's be the type of people who share enough that people realize I don't get, need to get in the habit to keep yanking more stuff out of you just to be a good brother or accountability partner, okay? I also want you to think about this. Why do you lie? Sometimes it may just be, I didn't want to blow the surprise, right? But is there a fear of man? A fear of man doesn't have to be literally a man. You can have an unhealthy fear of man in regard to your spouse because you're afraid when she gets upset or not, even, uh, not mad but like unhappy, right? Oh, I don't want to go down that path. She's going to wonder if I'm attracted to other women, things like that, and that does happen. I've talked to people in our church where that's a fear of theirs. Um, do you lie because of a love of money? Do you lie because you prioritize people's feelings over truth? Which seems like a good thing to do, but is very, very dangerous and frankly, biblically speaking, unloving. It's unloving, right? Um, you, you, wouldn't, you wouldn't be okay with a doctor who did that, right? Well, I know he's self-conscious about his weight, so I'm not going to tell him that he needs heart surgery, right? No. Hurt my feelings, doc, because I want to live, right? The truth, spiritually speaking, is even all the more important if you're talking about uh, someone's soul or someone's walk with God, okay? And that's me. You guys know that. Always find the bigger picture in what you're doing. Question number four. Modern U.S. political slash cultural tensions toss around the concept of, quote, rights as if matters of morality, whether it is life, liberty, pursuit of happiness, or property, privacy, free speech, reproductive, gun, marriage, death, education, work, voting, religious, health care rights. It seems an area of contention is whether such rights are intrinsic rights of humanity versus as granted by law. Given the amount of effort and energy spent to debate, promote, protect, or limit such rights, what is the Bible's perspective on rights? And every time he says rights, he puts it in quotations for humanity, right? This is a big thing, human rights. I mean, we live in a country for thankfully we have a lot of rights that we know that we can jump on a plane and just fly a few hours and they don't have those same rights. But let's start with what is intrinsic in humanity, which means what God gave Adam and Eve in the very beginning. He gave Adam and Eve certain privileges. I don't want to call them rights, and you'll see why in a moment, um, partially because they become subjective, as we'll see. So what are these privileges he gave Adam and Eve? In other words, things that they were able to do. And even as I explain this, you'll realize they don't really fall in the category of rights as we see them uh, on a political level. So they had the privilege of fellowship with God, right? We know that. They had the privilege of dominion over the animal kingdom. They had the privilege of marriage and having children be fruitful and multiply, things like this. However, as you know, all of this was confused and hindered and even some lost at the fall. Okay? 
What was lost, however, such as fellowship with God, was later redeemed by Christ for the believer. So that's very important. Okay? So if an unbeliever says, I have the right to have fellowship with God, that's actually not true because of depravity. Okay? They will be given that privilege if they turn to Christ. Now let's talk about human rights. The challenge with the concept of human rights is that they are subjective and they differ from culture to culture. And that's what I mean. They're not subjective in the sense that if our law says you have the right to this, that's objective, right? But I mean subjective in that it's a very, you know, many rights are American things, some rights are, you know, Filipino thing, a Russian thing, whatever it is. It's going to vary um, based on their constitution and their laws and frankly, whoever's in power and if they follow those laws. Even all of the many examples given in this specific question are examples of rights that we see granted here in the U.S. but may not be granted in other countries. And to make issues even more difficult, society considers the pursuit of human rights such a noble cause that it is hard to push back when some of those rights go against what the Scriptures teach. Okay? I want to share with you a story. And I received this story uh, from someone who experienced it firsthand. Uh, I had a professor in seminary who then was on the board of our organization when I was a missionary in Albania. Um, One of those guys who speaks like 13 languages fluently. Scholar. Okay? And he uh, was on the Bible translating team in Bangladesh. So he lived and served as a missionary for many, many years in Bangladesh. And so he was there firsthand when he saw, you guys, most of you will remember this, huge uh, child labor factories. Remember this? And a lot of big companies... um, I want to say Nike, I'm not saying it's Nike, but I'm giving that as as an example, were having children make their shoes in these sweatshops, right? These terms are familiar with you. They were calling them akin to slavery, right? And so he was there as he witnessed uh, what started with the Hollywood elite saying, look at this bad stuff. We need to boycott these companies until they stop using those factories, And as Americans, we succeeded, I'm sure with the help of other Europeans and whatnot. So these big companies stopped using these factories or stopped employing children. And so, although I'm sure there's still child labor there, it's not as widespread because these giant factories putting out millions of shoes or sweatshirts or whatever are no longer employing children. And so, they won. And what this former missionary told me is those families actually needed the income. It's not the parents were being lazy. They worked too. But now these factories are shut down, so many of these children are voluntarily becoming child prostitutes. You don't hear that part of it. But hey, win for human rights. The Hollywood elite shut down these factories in the name of calling it slavery, in which, ironically, now some of those children are literal slaves. 
I mean, what did they think? That the kids would go out and be able to have a normal American childhood and play in the streets? That's hard to do when you're starving to death. As Americans, we have an arrogant, self-righteous view of morality and human rights that we foist on other people often to their detriment, often to their literal deaths. We need to be very careful. Most of our rights are granted to us by our laws and our constitution, and they work in our culture. A lot of what happens is because they start long ago, right? When you try to change something when there's already an established system, things go very badly, okay? It's very hard. And some of these things, frankly, may not be considered good in other cultures, You understand that even the fact that I have zero fear that I will be arrested any moment for preaching God's Word is an American right granted by the laws of America that many countries do not have and that the Bible does not give me. Freedom of religion as we know it, as in not being arrested for your religion, is not even granted by God. Because if it was, there would not be Christians being beheaded as I speak. And you would think, in our human logic regarding human rights, of all the times that God should have granted freedom of religion, shouldn't it be when he was trying to start this whole thing in the first place? And yet the early church was persecuted, the apostles were martyred, even though starting this thing we called Christianity was not given the freedom of religion by God in the sense of freedom of being arrested. They're free to, you know, obviously come to Christ. But they were arrested, they were beaten, some of them by Saul before he became Paul. So how do we view these rights? And I'm going to stick with what we have in the United States. And this is not going to be a complete complete list. Number one, be grateful. Be grateful. You may be the 10th generation American, but it is in God's sovereignty that you are here. Many of us are first generation born in America. And our parents did not come here for freedom of religion. They came here for a better life, which means socially and usually financially. But God sovereignly did that for us so that we can have the right to vote, okay? The, the right to preach the Bible, believe what we want, speak up about that. Go to Central Park in San Mateo and tell other peoples about Christ and not worry we might be talking to an undercover secret police, right? So be grateful to the Lord for that, understanding that is not inherently deserved of us and definitely not given in other countries number two pray pray but don't flex first timothy 2 1 through 6 first of all then i urge that entreaties and prayers petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men for kings and all who are in authority so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. 
For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony given at the proper time. We need to pray for government leaders so that the freedoms we have, we will still have in 50, 70, 100 years. Right? They will, realistically speaking, they won't, they can't say we no longer have freedom of religion. But they can legally label some of the stuff we say as hate speech. And that's how they would shut down a lot of conservative Christianity. And so we need to pray for them. But also say we pray so that we can live a tranquil and quiet life. This doesn't mean that you don't preach the gospel. It means on a legal perspective, we pray for a politician and the laws of the land so that we can continue worshiping and not cause a fuss uh, on a political level. In other words, stop fighting the government. Okay? You've heard me say this before. Gossip about someone who's in the news is still gossip. They even call it that, celebrity gossip. Now, at the risk of uh, sounding self-aggrandizing, on a social level, we can learn from the Chinese in America, okay, as a people, right? Even when people recently were boycotting Chinatown because they're afraid to get COVID and randomly just punching elderly Chinese men and women on the street, the Chinese did not protest. They did not shut down freeways. They did not demand that the Lunar New Year be a public holiday. Chinese for decades in this country have kept their noses down. They have kept quiet. They have not demanded rights, and they have thus thrived academically and financially in this country to the point that, as you know, even the UC systems are saying we need to kind of put that application to the side if their last name is Chinese, okay? Because there's so many getting into these schools. What this passage is saying is keep your noses down, don't cause a fuss, and just pray for the government so we can continue to thrive spiritually as a church. Number three, take advantage of our legal rights for Christ. Freedom of religion, congregate, be bold with the gospel. Even health care and a livable wage frees you up physically for greater ministry and commitment to Christ. Vote, freedom to vote, vote in line with your beliefs. And number four, accept legal rights as they truly are, gifts from the Lord. And like with all gifts from the Lord, they can become idols, even life. Because we are sinners is a gift, not a right. We deserve death. We deserve hell. We deserve punishment. And happiness pursued for anything other than God's glory is an idol. Okay? Um, let me... Oh, boy. Well, I don't think we'll have time for these others. I have uh, three others. I'll save them for next time. Um, but just to whet your appetite, one is the biblical view of mental health. One is homeschooling versus public school versus Christian private school. Um, but we're out of time. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your kindness and your goodness to us. Thank you for the clarity of your word. Help us to continue applying it. 
uh, for, to our practical lives, even as U.S. citizens, as those who have been blessed with all the rights that we have, even the right to complain that we don't have enough rights on a legal level. Help us as believers be thankful and humble. Use us for your glory. Continue to drive us to be inquisitive and desire to know more from your word. In Jesus' name, amen.